Awesome. You know, I'm really excited about where we're going to be going with teaching this year. In fact, last year, it's like I just had things fall in place. How <laughs> The direction of what I'm supposed to teach really from here forward uh, for the rest of the year. So I'm really excited. And especially I'm excited about some things that I'm going to share with you uh, the next two Sundays as we get ready to enter into what um, sometimes is called the, the season of Lent. It's like uh, the seven weeks before Easter. And if you guys all remember, last year during the season of Lent, what we did is we did extended teaching on the Passion Narrative. Remember that? We had seven weeks looking at Jesus' final day from Gethsemane to Golgotha. Well, this time we're also going to focus on the season of Lent. We're going to have another theme, but instead of focusing on Jesus' final day, we're going to look at his final week. Um, and we're going to basically be looking at Matthew's chapter 22 through 25 for seven weeks. I'm really excited because as I've been sharing with you the last couple months, one thing I intend to do this year is do some teaching on end times or end of the age stuff. And this is a section in the Gospels where Jesus speaks at length about the end of the age, especially in Matthew 24 and 25, but even beginning in Matthew 22. So we're going to be looking at some of that theme going into Easter, and then after Easter I'm excited uh, we're going to be getting into the book of Revelation. And, and how many know in the first chapter of Revelation who we meet? We meet the resurrected Christ. And so I just think it's going to be a powerful time getting in there right uh, the first week after Easter. I intend to jump into Revelation. I know it's going to be really exciting. I believe it's going to be really practical, okay? And I know we're going to spend a lot of time in there this year and just, I think, just come alive in the power of the resurrected Christ. So this morning what I'm going to do, as you know, the last six or seven weeks I've been teaching some standalone individual sermons, and that's kind of what the last one I'm going to do uh, this morning. Because I have been studying the last four or five months on end-of-the-age stuff, end-time stuff, I've been not just reading Revelation and Matthew and Jesus's uh, Olivet Discourse and all of that, but I, to understand the background of a lot of that stuff, I've been reading the Old Testament prophets. So I've been reading Isaiah, I've been reading Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and as I was reading uh, Ezekiel recently, uh, this chapter just came alive to me in a whole new way, and it really ties into themes that we've been talking about the last couple Sundays about how God is the one who carries us, right? who takes care, care of us, who seats us at his table, who feeds us. And so we're going to look a little bit on, on that theme this morning, and I believe it's going to tie into what we're going to be looking at the next couple Sundays. And so um, if you want to look, if you want to follow along in your own Bibles, you can turn to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. Now Ezekiel sometimes uh, is referred to as an exilic prophet, meaning he was prophesying during the time of Israel's exile, or specifically Judah's exile when they were in, uh, you know, in captivity in Babylon. So he and, and Daniel are, are exilic prophets. Jeremiah, to a certain extent, is an exilic prophet. And what uh, 
you know, just to kind of give you a sense of what's happening in Ezekiel before chapter 34, Ezekiel is giving these really powerful visions, and he's given a vision. First off, he's, he's taken by the Spirit. The, the Spirit of God comes, and he grabs him by the hair, and he flies him over to Jerusalem. It's really amazing. All these visions in Ezekiel are really weird and cool, kind of like Zechariah. And he's there, and, and God gives him this powerful vision, this spiritual vision of all of this idolatry that's taking place in the temple precincts. He sees them worshiping all sorts of foreign gods. He sees all sorts of filth happening in the temple. And then he has a powerful vision of what God does. He sees God's chariot throne lift up from the temple and move, his presence move out of the temple and go and sit on the Mount of Olives. And then he sees it pick up from the Mount of Olives and go eastward. What was eastward? That was Babylon. That's where the exiles are. And God was saying, you know, you have um, basically, uh, uh, you made my temple unclean, you, you've defamed it, and so my presence, it now has to leave uh, the house of God, there the temple in Jerusalem, and Babylon's going to destroy it, okay? But my presence is going to be there, it's going to leave. And where my presence is going to go, it's going to go to be with those who rightfully submitted under Jeremiah's prophecy to go and to be in Babylon so I could rebuild their lives there. And Ezekiel said that he went and he was a little sanctuary there for all of the exiles who were living in Babylon. Okay, and so what's happening once we get to Ezekiel 34 is that God is showing Ezekiel how uh, the main reason that Israel fell, Judah fell, the temple was destroyed, Solomon's temple was destroyed, all this uh, you know, bad stuff happened, was because they had bad leaders. They had bad kings. In fact, the Bible, will see God calls them their bad shepherds. And primarily, the shepherd, it speaks of the king over Israel, the leader over Israel. When we think of Israel's greatest king, who do we think of? We think of David. Who was David before he was chosen as king, anointed as king? He was a shepherd, right? And so, you know, God always wanted the shepherding model for the king. And there were, you know, a few good kings that followed in the model of David, kings like Hezekiah and Josiah and, you know, um, Jehoshaphat. And there were a few good ones, but there were far more bad ones. And so finally, after all of these bad shepherds, all these bad kings over Israel, God says, I'm done with this, right? <laughs> We're going to do something new. i got to make a new restoration covenant. We're going to go into a whole new order. This king thing is done. My people are going into exile. And this is the prophecy then that, that God gives to the exiles in Babylon. Let's read it. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man. So Ezekiel, all throughout Ezekiel, is called Son of man by God. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. Now this is just speaking more about kings. The shepherds also refer to the religious leaders as well. Verse 4. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, 
nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherd shall feed them no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among the scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their food shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. Verse 17. And as for you, O my flock, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats. Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pasture, and to have drunk of the clear waters, that you must foul the residue with, residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet, and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I myself will uh, judge between the fat and the lean sheep, because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns, and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock, and they shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, my servant David. You know, this is, of course, speaking of the seed of David, Jesus Christ. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them, I, the Lord, have spoken. Verse 25. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and cause wild beasts to cease from the land, and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing, and I will cause showers to come down in their season, there shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord 
when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them, and they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, and they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles any more. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord God. Amen? Now, this primarily, what it's speaking about is, it's speaking about, it does, it, there's a partial fulfillment when Israel does come back from captivity and is reestablished in the land. But the fullness of the fulfillment came about when the seed of David, Jesus Christ himself, came. And this is, all of these things are spiritual pictures of how Jesus Christ ministers to you and me, his church. Okay, We are the Israel of God, as Galatians 6 puts it. And so all of the promises of God are yes and amen in who? In Jesus Christ. In fact, these, these very verses like that says... Um, uh, you, you shall know that I am the Lord their God, and the house of Israel are my people. These verses are, are quoted in the New Testament by the apostles to refer to the church, to refer to you and me. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, you know, he's always going to Jerusalem during the festivals. In fact, we know that he goes to Jerusalem for all of the Jewish festivals except the Day of Atonement. I think the reason why he doesn't go for the Day of Atonement is because there wasn't a truly valid high priest in Israel at the time. And so I'm, I'm, I'm guessing Jesus most likely didn't celebrate that festival. But he would go there even for the minor festivals. And in John chapter 10, we see him there for what is called the Feast of Dedication, what many people today more commonly refer to as Hanukkah. And it was a Jewish festival, a minor one, that, that began in the second century B.C. after the temple was restored. What happened is some bad shepherds, some bad people, they, they came in and they deposed the, the rightful priest, Onias III. And what happened is uh, they were sacrificing pigs in the temple and all this stuff. They were desecrating the temple. It was kind of like what, what happened to the temple before uh, God, God destroyed uh, Solomon's temple. And so it was really bad. And what happened was God raised up a little help, just as Daniel had prophesied, and they cleansed the temple, and the temple was restored, and it was rededicated. This is why Hanukkah is called the Feast of Dedication. And what happened as, as they began to celebrate the festival of Hanukkah is that the Jews began to develop readings each year for the celebration of Hanukkah. In fact, for every festival, they developed uh, readings that they would read every year. And the reading that they would read every year for Hanukkah was what we just read. It was Ezekiel 34. So as all of the teachers, the rabbis, the priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, they're all hearing about what Jesus, or what God said through the prophet Ezekiel about the poor shepherds and the good shepherd he would provide. Well, guess what? Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to get on get in on the action, and after the reading of the word, I'm going to give my own expository sermon on Ezekiel 34. 
And this is what he gets up and he says. It's in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says this, The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, right, the bad shepherd, a thief, the one who preys on the sheep, the hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Just like happened in Ezekiel 34, right? The hireling flees because he's a hireling and does not care about the sheep. He just cares about the money, right? Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd, right? Just as was prophesied in Ezekiel 34, 23, that it would be one flock under one shepherd. And now Jesus is expanding it in this verse. And he's saying it's not just going to be northern Israel and southern Judah who are made one again, but it is going to include even the Gentiles, that they are going to be brought in and be part of the people of God. Now, northern Israel and southern Israel, they were brought together again when the uh, exiles returned from the land, because um, you know, when Assyria was captured by Babylon, what happened was all of the northern tribes who were part of the, uh, the Assyrian captivity, they became part of Babylon. And when Babylon sent all the Jews back, they didn't just send the southern tribe Judah back, but they sent all the northern tribes back too. So this is why, for instance, when we get into the New Testament, we see all the tribes there. We see Anna, who's of the tribe of Asher. We see Saul, who's of the tribe of Benjamin. We see many uh, people who are of the tribe of Judah. They're all there back in the land. So that had a partial fulfillment already. But Jesus says, I'm going to take it to the next level. I'm going to include not just the northern tribes and the southern tribes. I'm going to include every tribe, tongue, and nation in the world. And I'm going to be the shepherd of all of them. And this is who the great king of kings, the good shepherd is Jesus. He wants to be the good shepherd over each and every person, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And, and what we're going to see, what I want to look at just the rest of this morning here, is I want to look at three chapters in the Gospel of Mark. And I want to see how Jesus lives out what he had just declared there during the Feast of Dedication, that he is the Good Shepherd. How he demonstrated what it meant to be a Good Shepherd in Israel, and he demonstrated it primarily for his apostles, who he had called to be under-shepherds, right? To imitate his life, to imitate his ministry. And so in Mark chapter 6, what we see is we see a commission that Jesus gave his 12 disciples. Remember, he called 12 to be with him. And this is what it says in Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he called the 12 to himself and began to send them out two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits. He commanded them to take nothing for the journey except a staff. All they were going to take was a staff. I think of the shepherd's staff. 
no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. So they go out, and guess what happens? God begins to work many mighty miracles, right? People are cleansed of demons, the sick are healed, they come back rejoicing in all this stuff that's happening, and Jesus is like, well, don't just rejoice in, in this, but rejoice that people's names are being written in heaven, right? That's the greatest miracle that's happening. And then, and then Jesus says, um, he, he does something interesting with them after they come back from this long time of ministry through most of the towns of Israel. Uh, it says this in, in Mark 6, verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both of which uh, they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. Now, you know, the first thing Jesus wants to do as the good shepherd of his people is to give them rest. You know, that's the first thing that should happen when anybody comes to Christ, that we have rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Right? I don't have a choice. He's saying, boy, get down and rest on that grass right now, right? You need to rest. So they're just filled with ministry. They're, they're, and, and Jesus says, you know what? This isn't healthy. You need to take a season of rest, so I'm going to take you aside, and I'm going to give you a rest. And then I'm going to show you that I'm not just giving you rest, but I want everybody to have rest on green pastures. As I was reading through the Gospel of Mark one year, this just popped out on me in a whole way, how, how Mark chapter 6, 7, and 8 follows the outline of the Good Shepherd of Psalm 23. And, that, and that's what I want to show you this morning, how Jesus models ministry is supposed to be how then we are able to, to minister to one another, to all of Christ's sheep as he ministers through us. He's the chief shepherd, we're his under-shepherds, right? And, and this, is, this is what it says happens next after they go away and have a time of rest with Jesus. In Mark 6, 39, it says this, that um, a, a you know, large crowd was call, following him, 5,000 men plus women and children. It says this, verse 39, Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups on green grass. They hadn't eaten for three days, right? Um, they were hungry. And, you know, the disciples are like, what do you want us to do? Go buy food? It'd, it'd take a half years of wages to feed all these people. And so he commanded them to sit down on the green grass, verse 40, so they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish that the little boy gave him, remember, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them, so they all ate and were filled. Where? Lying down on green pastures. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down on green pastures. You know, here's the thing. Um, they were feasting on the word of God for three days, right? That was enough for them. That was sufficient. I would think, you know, some people, after they hear, you know, just the word for an hour, they want to go get lunch, right? 
These guys were so excited about the ministry of Jesus that they didn't even care that they didn't have any food, right? They're following him for three days, and they're feasting on the spiritual word of God. And then, and then Jesus says, you know what? I want you to continue to feast on my word, so I don't want you to leave me. I, you know, I want you to show you that I'm the provider of everything, spiritual, natural, everything. So I'm going to make you lie down on green pastures, and we're going to take the one offering, the little boy who gave us his lunch, and we're going to show that that is enough, that is sufficient. And he feeds his people. He takes care of them. It says that they all ate and were satisfied. They ate till they were filled, right? God meets all of our needs according to his riches and glory, right? He can take care of his people. What's the next story in Mark? Well, it has to do with he leads me beside still waters. What happens right after Jesus uh, feeds them on 5,000 on green pastures? Uh, Mark 6, verse 48 then he saw them straining. Uh, so the disciples, they decided to get in uh, the boat on the Sea of Galilee and cross over to the other side. It's about a seven-mile rowing journey to get across the Sea of Galilee. So it says this, that he saw them straining at, at rowing. Other Gospels tell us they're, they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, so about three and a half miles in, right? And he saw them straining at row, rowing, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. The only one who's described as walking on the sea in the Old Testament, in the Psalms, is God. God is the only one who walks on the sea. He came to them walking on the sea and would have passed them by. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased. And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. So here are these guys, right? They just experienced one of the greatest miracles that has ever been done, right? They had saw... 15,000, 20,000 people fed with just a few loaves and a few fishes. And then Jesus, he goes by himself to a mountain to pray. They decide to go and cross uh, the lake uh, by themselves to get uh, to the other side, prepare things for Jesus' next ministry over there. And a giant windstorm arises. Now, these guys are all fishermen, right? They're professionals, right? They understand the Sea of Galilee. They've grown up on it their entire life. They understand the kind of the uh, you know, storms that they might face, but this one is especially strong. So much so that they're like in fear of their lives. And they're, they're really just straining and life is hard. How many know that after seasons where you, know, you might have had God work in your life in a real powerful way, like the feeding of the 5,000, that storms, other storms still come around in life, right? Well, we can expect storms to come. Storms will come. Jesus promised they will come. But the good news is, is that Jesus is in the midst of the storm and that Jesus will still the storm. He spoke to the storm and he said, peace, be still. And in a moment, it went from a boisterous storm to just the sea of glass, placid stillness, right? He leads me beside still waters. That's what the good shepherd was doing after making them lie down in green pastures. He was stilling the storms for them. And that's what he can do for you and me. The fearful and faithless souls of the disciples 
were restored in that moment. They were in awe. You know, when I was in Israel last summer, uh, I think probably my favorite part of the trip was being at the Sea of Galilee. And uh, one minute before we went out on the Sea of Galilee on a boat, it started to rain. Like, started to rain pretty good. And the tour guide was like, this never happens. It never rains in June or whenever we were there. And so it, it, it rains the entire time we're on the Sea of Galilee. And then the moment we get off the boat, you know what happens? It stops raining. <laughs> and every time I think about that, I think about it because we were reading the stories of Jesus stilling all the storms on the Sea of Galilee. And I think this is the one, Jesus, who truly leads us through the storms of life. And he, he leads us beside the still waters, right? And he restores our soul. He restores our soul. What does the Psalm 23 say next? He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Well, after they had rested in green pastures, after God had led, uh, Jesus had led them beside still waters, led them to the other side, he then began to lead them in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And this is Mark chapter 7. In Mark chapter 7, uh, Jesus has a confrontation with uh, his great antagonist in the Gospels, the great, his great enemy, which is primarily the Pharisees. It's all the religious groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, all of them. But the Pharisees in particular. And this is um, what it says in Mark 7, verse 1. It says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. Now when they saw some of um, his disciples eat bread with defiled that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. Um, now, the hands weren't really defiled. This was a human tradition. Verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands. The Jews could just be there, the Judeans. I think that's probably the better uh, translation there. For all the Pharisees and all the Judeans do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding what? The tradition of the elders. Not holding to the word of God, but holding to the tradition of the elders, the oral law. The thing that they said came from God from Mount Sinai, but really just came from the pit of hell. Verse 15. Um, so Jesus, he, he corrects them, and, and, and this is what he says about where uncleanliness really comes from. Verse 15. There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile him. And so uh, what, what Jesus shows is how they make void the word of God by their vain traditions. They have what they believe is righteousness, but it isn't righteousness at all. It's, it's a false righteousness. It's a fake righteousness. It's the pharisaical righteousness of man, which isn't righteousness at all. And what does Jesus show us? What we need is true righteousness. We need the righteousness that is a gift to us. We need the righteousness that Ezekiel prophesies about in Ezekiel 36, that God will place a new heart inside of us. And he says, out of that new heart is what matters, what springs from that heart. And we want the life of the Spirit springing from our heart, right? Jesus says that's what matters, not about washing your hands. You think you're right with God because you wash your hands before every meal? No. It's not bad to wash your hands, but if, if that's a, a, a thing you're following just and think you're right with God in that way, no, that's, that is a vain tradition of 
the elder. So he leads us in the true paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He shows us what true righteousness is. Aren't you glad that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? Aren't you glad that you have been created a new man in, in true righteousness and holiness? That I am a new creature in Christ Jesus, right? That, I, that, that, that the Spirit of God is living inside of me. That, 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 um, that righteousness is a gift. And I can reign in life through the gift of Jesus Christ inside of me. So I'm not going to be walking through life in pharisaical righteousness. No, that's going to lead me down the wrong path. I'm going to be led by the Good Shepherd and He leads me in paths of his righteousness for his name's sake. I'm going to be following the path of Jesus, right? And that primarily is what? It's the path of love. The next part of Mark 7 has to do with the next phrase in Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now what happens is Jesus, he leaves the region of Galilee, and he goes into the region of the Gentiles. And who meets him? A Syrophoenician woman. Someone who is not a Jew, but who is a Gentile. Guess, uh, in, in a sense, you know, the Jews would view this place as the valley of the shadow of death. In fact, Isaiah chapter 9, it said, um, it, it speaks about the Gentiles in the northern region of Israel. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This is, we might say, a, a valley of the shadow of death. And, and what does this woman do? Mark 7, 25. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit about her. Uh, an unclean spirit, that would be, you know, one of the devil's angels, as Jesus calls it in Matthew 25 a spirit of death. For the woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And what does Jesus ultimately do? He casts the demon out of her daughter. In fact, he, he tests her a little bit, and she passes the test with flying colors, and he says, man, I haven't even found as great a faith in Israel. You have great faith, right? And so he, he casts the demon out of her. And here we see that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this woman who's walking through a trial, she's in darkness. She's in the land of the Gentiles. Her daughter is filled with an unclean spirit. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, when the good shepherd is there, I will fear no evil, right? I will fear no evil. I will turn in faith to the good shepherd. No matter how dark things get, no matter how bad things get, Jesus is in my midst. And I tell you what, I have no reason to fear. Fear not. I am with you. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. Um, you know, his rod, uh, his rod and his staff, you know, the rod would really, uh, you'd be used to beat back the wolves, to beat back uh, the animals that preyed against the sheep, right? So in that sense, when Jesus stretches out his rod for the Syrophoenician woman, what does he do? He beats back that evil spirit, right? <laughs> what do we do? 
When we, we stretch out our rod in, in faith in the name of Jesus and his authority and his power, I tell you what, we can beat back the enemy's influence in, in the lives of others, right? His rod comforts her and his staff comforts her. It's good news. Look what it goes on to say in verse 32 of Mark. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, A path, which is be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. He spoke plainly. You know, the staff comforts. Um... The staff of the shepherd is the extension of his hand to pull us back to himself. Jesus is always pulling us back to himself when we begin to stray. Sometimes he needs to open our ears so we can start saying things that align with who he is and not with what we hear and see in our wandering, right? We're, we're kind of like, you know, um, you know how the staff has a crook on it and what does it do? It can, it can grab that sheep, uh, you know, and, and, and put it... it in, in the right path again, and it, it can see, and it can, it can hear, and, and that's what God, God does, is, is he comforts this man who, who cannot um, uh, speak, right? And, and he has an impediment. He, he can't hear, and so he has an impediment. But when we hear what the Word of God says, when we hear the truth of Jesus Christ, guess what? Our speech can be pure again. Our speech can be seasoned with salt. It can be seasoned with grace. We can speak the truth again. That's what the good shepherd does for us. He opens our ears and he makes our speech pure again. And then in Mark chapter 8, and this is the last part of Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. You know, in the tabernacle and in the temple, God was very specific about where all of the furniture was to be placed. And in the tabernacle in the temple, he said that the table that had the showbread on it, it had to be placed on the north side. And the reason why is because throughout scripture, where the enemy comes from when it comes to invade Israel is almost always from the north. So what does God do for his people? He says, I'm going to prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies, right? When the enemy is growling, when it is prowling, you just need to sit down and you need to feast on me, right? You just need to understand who you are in Christ Jesus. We're about to do that soon, right, when we take communion. And, and we're going to say, no, God has a table for me at all times in the presence of my enemies. The enemy is not going to overcome me. I'm going to overcome him, right, by the blood of the lamb and the word of my testimony. And I'm going to be victorious, right? I am going to be a sheep that's taken care of by my shepherd. This is what it says in Mark 8, verse 11. Then the Pharisees, who were those, the enemies of Jesus, most of them, there were some good Pharisees who came to faith, like uh, Nicodemus. But it says, Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf. 
with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So that was the religious spirit and the political spirit. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. Then, uh, but Jesus, being aware of it, did they have no bread? No, they had one loaf. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke up the seven for the four thousand, how many large basketfuls of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How do you not understand? Now, how many, Jesus, how many apostles were with Jesus in the boat? Twelve. How many baskets full did they have? Twelve. How many did they have for the four thousand? Seven. They had a complete meal for each and every one of them, right? Seven is completeness. Twelve meant it's complete for each and every one of them. And he said, how do you not understand? You know, I'm preparing a table for you in the presence of the enemies. Here the enemies came again, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And I'm saying, do not be influenced by them. Don't get caught up in a religious spirit and don't get caught up in a political spirit, right? Where you think politics is your savior. And, 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 and Jesus says, instead, you need to continue to feast on me. They had a loaf. He said, um, I can still be your provision. I can still be your provider. I can still be the bread that is influencing you. I can still be your life. Aren't you glad that Jesus prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies? I tell you what, we constantly need to wash our minds and our hearts with who Jesus is, right? Because there are so many other spirits that are vying for our attention. The pharisaical spirits, the, the, the spirits of Herod, right? That, that they want our allegiance. And, and, and ultimately, we got to say, wait a second, no. we got to make sure that those things are all subservient to who Jesus is in our life. So Jesus is the good shepherd, and he shows this all throughout the Gospel of Mark. And, you know, Psalm 23 ends this way. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know what happened after they got to the other side on the Sea of Galilee? It says in Mark 8:22, Then they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. Why did they uh, beg Jesus to touch him? Because they had heard and they had seen that everyone that Jesus would touch, that virtue would flow from him, and that he would heal people, right? And it says that anyone who came to Jesus, that Jesus would indeed heal. Jesus never turned away one person. In fact, as we read in Ezekiel 34, as, as, as Jesus says in, in Luke 19, the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which was lost. He chases after us with his goodness and his mercy. So he goes across the sea one way and the next way. And what is he doing? He's chasing after the lost sheep of Israel with his goodness and his mercy. He's healing the weak. He's raising them up. He's bringing back the stray. Everything the bad shepherds of Israel did, the bad kings and the bad religious leaders, Jesus says, I, as the Lord God Almighty in your midst, am going to make up for all their failures. So I tell you what, you know, even in the Christian life, right, we will all have 
pastors, leaders, teachers, people we look up to, who will fall short? How many know that? We'll be disappointed in life. You will be disappointed by me, right? You'll be disappointed by every Christian leader. But here's the thing. You never will be disappointed by Jesus, okay? And Jesus is with you always. Now, me, you know, I constantly need to say, wait a second. I need to make sure I'm doing the kind of things Jesus is doing, right? And we all need to do that. We need to do a checkup and say, man, and, and, and do I have the heart of Jesus in ministering to his sheep? Do I have the heart of Jesus in, in reaching out to those who, who need help, reaching out to those who are strayed, reaching out to those who are lame and those who, those who are sick, those who need to be instructed? You know, and, and, am I making sure that you know, I'm there to, to help and, and to bring hope and to bring, to bring encouragement? And, 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 and I say, you know, well, the more I spend time with the Good Shepherd, the more that life will be reflected in me. Amen? So Jesus is with you. Jesus is for you. Jesus will lead you. Jesus will guide you. Jesus will restore you. And we're going to take communion now. Amen. Anyone here not receive a communion element, go ahead and raise your hand.